The MLB trade deadline has come and gone, and boy, was it amazing. Jonesy's up here. We're going to break it down on this episode of Flashing the Leather. What's up, everyone? Welcome to this third installment of Flashing the Leather. I am Matt Freitz, the Iceman, and this is John Jonesy Jones. That's repetitive, but it's a great name, and I think it's wonderful. <laughs> the trade deadline has come and gone, my man, but welcome back. How are you? I am great. I'm glad to be back here. So last week, we planned on getting into the studio, and I was the one. I said, let's let's wait a week. I want to see what happens in the trade deadline. I don't want to have an episode of What Ifs the whole time. I actually want to see and talk about things that happen. That's what we're doing today. Um, and I'm very excited. It was a fun day yesterday. Look at you producing the show already. Third episode, and you're already peeking behind the curtain. That's my move normally. But he is right that he talked me off the cliff of recording last week because usually I just like to record and, and get some content out there. But the trade deadline needed to come and go. And it was great. But before we get into that, normally we do a little banter at the beginning. And I want to talk about the Immaculate Grid. Are you up for this? I'm nervous because I love it, but I'm not good at it. And I wish I was. I did get Immaculate once, though. The Immaculate Grid is amazing because to me it taps into this, this zeitgeist with men, I think predominantly men, who we love to sit around and talk about and just name sports players. Like it's almost not even specific to a sport. Baseball, though, for me, is the best one. And that's why the Immaculate Grid started with baseball and has since spawned on other ones. But I love it because it tests my knowledge. And I'm like you, if left to my own devices without other people to sort of talk with the sport about, I find myself blanking way more often. Yeah, it's so it's a nine by nine grid. Um, it usually has four to five teams that intersect with each other and you have to pick a player that happens, you know, say plays for the Blue Jays and for the Mariners at some point in their career. And then you'd have to fill in a square that say it was a Blue Jays player that hit, you know, say uh, 40 home runs in a season. And it go and if you miss, if you guess and you miss, you, you, and you only get nine guesses, so you have to guess perfectly to get the whole grid perfect, and it is daunting. And when you miss, it's so painful. I was going to say, the other day, you <laughs> told me how you were shook because you got one wrong, and you had to take a minute. Now, that's happened to me where I've seen the grid. Normally, I'll look at the grid, look at the teams, and if there are more than one team from one of the centrals, I need to put it down and walk away because more likely than not, I'm not going to be able to recall somebody who played for the Tigers and the Pirates just like that. It just doesn't work because there are a lot of teams that haven't had sustained success in a long time. And so you don't have a lot of years to pull from. But when you have some of these franchises that have obvious answers of guys who played for them, right? you have a better starting point. But it is really taking over the sports landscape this summer to where I hear about it on the radio. I hear about it online. And you're the one I think who got me into it. And now I can't stop. Even if I'm bad, even if I'm bad, I can't stop. But when you get immaculate, I said it on Facebook the other day, I don't think I derive more joy right now than I do from getting an immaculate <laughs> grid. And that is very sad for me in my life. Well, don't forget about the uh, the rarity um, component of the game where you've got like an easy answer like, oh, who was an MVP and who has hit 40 home runs or something. But then you're like, you look at that and you say, how rare of a pick can I get? And it'll tell you on the, uh, the immaculate grid what percentage of people are guessing that I, that's a fun aspect of the game. Have you noticed that you can talk yourself into just about anybody like, oh yeah, so-and-so mm -hmm. played yeah. for the Marlins <laughs> when they had absolutely no business being with the Marlins and never were there. I, I've just been finding it so fun, but yet again, it is very stressful, but it's a good segue into this because it sort of lends itself to all these guys getting traded with free agency. The landscape of sports in general has changed, but certainly with baseball, because I think guys change teams more often in baseball than they ever did. And the trade deadline has a lot to do with that, just because teams are looking to reload or load up for the playoff run. And this is the time to get guys, not cheap. And we talked about that last time about how expensive it is, but some teams made a splash. And I want to talk about two to start in particular. 
I want to go back to last episode. And if you have watched last episode, you know we got a little impassioned talking about Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. And both of us at the time said that the Angels should dump one of them, specifically Otani, and try to get everything that they could for him and move on because they're not going to sign him. Right. And they basically told us to F off and they are not trading Shohei Otani and he's there. And they even went out and got help. So the Angels yep. <laughs> are trying now, which is weird to me because it feels as if this is the first time in a good eight years that they're trying. It's too late. And the owner came out and said, I'm not selling Otani uh, like at the beginning of the weekend where where people who are even in the market to try to get him for two months as a rental could have went out and tried to get him. But no, the owner came out and said, nope, he is not for sale. And then just started going, and I think they get. I think he was the first to move and got Giolito um, early, which was so bold. And I, I liked the move. I like him going out and get it now. It, I don't think it's. I personally, I don't think it's the right move. The ship is burning. It's not looking good. It's going. It seems like it's going down. It's an all like in at the poker table. It's like I'm all in, and I'm like I'm losing it all, or I'm getting nothing, and it's a. It, you know what? You have to respect the move. I respect the move, but I certainly don't respect the timing of it because as I talked to you that day about it when they announced it, which, by the way, strategically, it's not a smart move to say you're out of the game before the game is really started. I know that the trade deadline can be taken advantage of before the 31st, but let's face it, you have the most leverage when you have something that people want closer to the deadline because people are panicking and they're willing to give up a lot, except for Brian Cashman. I don't know if you saw all the memes of him falling asleep oh, during the trade deadline. Like, he never does anything now. And I think Yankees fans hate him. Now. Oh, I know. It's great. Uh, I'm, I'm here for it. But <laughs> anyway, so I just thought it was a really dumb move for them to say outright, because you never know what you're going to get. Some team could come in and have an offer that you just cannot refuse. You're talking about a generational guy who could get them a lot. Now, somebody who watched our last video did say That's a great point. that by doing so, you're gutting the team that you're sending him to. But I think they're missing the point. They're not sending major league ready players over for him. Most of it is going to be either cash compensation at some point or prospects that you're not really sure how they're going to work out. So, yes, in some way you are giving up a lot to get him. But for some of these teams, Otani is the difference between a ring and not a ring. And there are teams that are like that, where he would 100% make them better. And the funny part is, I'm not sure the Angels are one of those teams. Right. And I've got a friend that's a Baltimore Orioles fan, and Baltimore is doing some very exciting things this year. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention to that, they are a fun team. They're currently in first place. And I talked to him like, what, what could you imagine Shohei Otani on the team this year for two, the final two months of the stretch? Perfect example. They need They need pitching. They need power. Uh, what's to hate? And and now, Baltimore. Um, if you don't know, they their farm system is absolutely stacked, and they look like they're going to be around for a little while right now. So, uh, maybe they're um holding their chips and waiting for the right moment. But uh, yeah, you're right. It, any any team that he goes on that's in the hunt would make a difference this year. Do you know how the Orioles remind me of from an organizational perspective? Without the cheating, is the Astros. You remember the Astros for a long time were really really bad. And then all of a sudden, all these guys came up from the system that they were in, and now they have this dynasty which continues to produce. And so I see the Orioles kind of in that same realm. It's just their division is so, so difficult. But going back to the Angels, that's one of the things I think what makes their move tough is that they're trying, and they're obviously stacking themselves to try and make a playoff push. But this year in particular, there are so many teams in the hunt this late, and like an entire division is in the hunt. And it makes it difficult for them to compete and stay afloat. And I feel like three weeks from now, we're going to be looking at them and thinking they have no chance because there are so many teams that are going to stay in it until the end. You think they're going to dip. The Red Sox have went on a little bit of a, a bender and now they've they've come back, right? So they're still in the hunt. They're still like game and a half out. How do you, how do you compete with that knowing that? And I feel like that's why I said it. it's too late because they've waited too long and the the competition is just too good. Yeah, and the thing, and and I think you're talking about Otani still. So I think the other thing too about Otani is um, he is he's not only just a player; he's like a brand. Um, so Otani being on the Angels generates a lot of tickets, generates a lot of attention on that team, and I kind of like the way the owner used him. Like, hey, let's win a championship now. We're going to get Trout back. By the way, he's on the aisle. I think he's coming back soon. Um, and I, they went out and got Giolito, 
right away. I mean, they needed an arm. They went out and got a guy. Now, he he's kind of been um, inconsistent, but hey, take him off of a new team, fresh new team, fresh new catcher. Um, see what you got. Maybe something works. And you got a couple other guys. You got a relief pitcher in Lopez and you got um, uh, CJ Crone who can who can uh, drive the ball. And I think um, oh, uh, a Hunter Renfro. So he's he's back and healthy. So now you've got a team that looked pretty banged up. Yes, they've got a lot of money tied up in some of these players. But hey, they're giving themselves a shot. In a, in, a, in, a, in a league that has three wild cards available and, hey, make a push. I think they're three and a half back now in the wild card. Yeah, it's just there's so many other teams. And the, what they need to hope for is that the ALEs kind of beats up on itself between now and the end because they all play each other a lot still. And it's funny, though, because when we talked earlier, the first episode we did, it was in May, right? And the season was so young. Mm-hmm. And when we talked about the Rays at the time, we were so impressed. And since then... They seem to have come back down to earth so much so that they're in second place. And now, though, late in the season, it's August 1st or August 2nd as we're recording this. Statistically speaking, when you talk about what does it mean to be in first place now, and I think that statistically, if you're in first place now, you have a great shot at not only making the playoffs, but making a run for it. And that's why I wonder if teams look at themselves now and almost that hopium kind of sets in where you think, okay, we're close enough. But I've noticed that the first place teams basically bolstered themselves where they needed to and they did the right thing. A lot of times if you're in first, you don't want to go too crazy because you already have the pieces. Notice the Braves were pretty quiet, 30 games over 500. You don't really need to do a whole lot. So what does it mean to be in first place now with two months to go? So I have to steal a stat that I read off MLB News, um, which I found interesting and I'll share with the show. It was if you're in first place, on August 1st, there's a 72% chance that you're going to finish your division in first place. That's a great stat. That means that most of the time, if you've got a, even a, even if a lead, whether it's dominant or just one game up, there's a chance, there's a very good chance that you're going to remain in that position, which is key for the seeding in the playoffs now that they have seeding. Now that, and, and remember, uh, a wild card game, even though that's, uh, it's, it's like a three, it's a three game series. You lose, it's so quick. So to be able to to be able to get into the playoffs and uh, maybe even secure a buy now that they have the buys, um, it's it's worth it to be. And so I'm looking at the Reds, the Orioles, the Rangers, I think we're in first place. Um, and met, and that right now they might share first place, but that still counts. The Dodgers, obviously, and some of the other strong teams, uh, the Twins as well in a weak AL Central Division. Uh, all all have a very good shot of just sticking around and being there when the time comes uh, at the end of September. Yeah, and I think some of those teams that didn't do anything are looking at themselves probably thinking, like the Reds, I would say. Oh, yeah. Probably feel like they were a year or two away, and so they're sort of overachieving with the team that they have because I assume it's a very young team, even though Joey Votto, 40-year-old Joey Votto, is still on that team. But they didn't want to go ahead and try to sacrifice because there's a window, or at least they feel like there's a window and they're ahead of it, which I think is smart. And the Red Sox did the same thing. They didn't go out and do anything crazy. They actually got rid of Kike Hernandez to try to get something for him because there are some teams who could use a utility guy. And they didn't go crazy. They kept Verdugo. Yes, exactly. So you talked about, or I just said windows. And let's talk about the New York Mets. And I know this is something that you have to be sort of reveling in as a Phillies fan because the New York Mets right now, we were very critical. I was very critical about their spending spree at the beginning of this season. And our yeah, they rolled they rolled the dice. Our first episode. Now you have an owner who comes in, he's brand new, wants to make a splash, has the kind of money, sure. Do whatever it is that you want. The Padres did the same thing. Now the Padres didn't sell, but the Mets sold in a way that has to, for me, make it one of the biggest failures in all of sports. Uh, period. The end. I mean, cool. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and could you like? I, I was. I kind of heard a good. I, I was listening to some radio, and I kind of heard like it. It kind of went off on a for, on a very bad uh, first step at the beginning of the season. Remember World Baseball Classic, Edwin Diaz, who is arguably the best closer in the game goes and gets injured. Yes. And it was just like a sour note right off the bat. You're like, oh, a little bit of a bad omen here. He's done for the year. They're closer. Then uh, Scherzer has some like shoulder fatigue. Then Verlander has like a lat problem. And then I, and then, um, oh, there's, who, who's their third starter went down with injury? Uh, um, 
um, <laughs> forgetting the name, but he is so three starters go down and then all of it, but they're still winning. And you're like, wow, they've got enough firepower. Maybe they stick around, but they weren't, they weren't blowing the, the shutters off. And they're like, let's just wait around till our, our, um, star aces get back. And then Scherzer just didn't look very good. Verlander took too long getting back and it's really just falling apart. But I mean, that Edwin Diaz, can you imagine just you being Edwin Diaz, watching your team just implode, thinking to yourself, wow, I need to be on this team next year. It's going to look completely different. Um, they sold they sold the team. And now um, the amount of like uh, deferred remaining cash on, on the salary next year is like $155 million. They have no money to spend. Uh, they can't add anybody. Uh, they they do have a little bit of a nice farm system, and they got they've got um, a couple of nice little young infielders that could come in. But man, they are I would say for three years they will be in no man's land and just stuck. And it's funny because after Scherzer got traded, now I believe he had to waive a no trade clause to be able to go to Texas. But it's just amazing because they spent so much money. Now normally, what happens? When you spend that kind of money, you find yourself outside of the window. The window has shut and you've got these old aging contracts that are just albatrosses and you end up eating that money. And what's interesting is, and I think maybe there is some credit to be given in that they noticed it and realized that they had an opportunity that it wasn't working and that they didn't want to get into that position with all of those contracts. So they tried to get rid of them and get something for them. So they sort of tried to right the wrong. It's like a makeup call, but you can't go back in time. And the thing is... And the Mets fans are very impatient. Which is fun, I think. <laughs> I mean, again, coming from a Red Sox fan base that is equally, if not a thousand times more impatient, except there's been winning at some point. So the Mets don't really have that. And I can understand the frustration. But the thing is, they signed the wrong guys. And that's not to cast expersions on Scherzer or Verlander, but when you put so much money into guys that are 38 or older, what did you think was going to happen? There's risk there. A lot of risk there. We're not talking about you have a couple of injuries here or there. Like those guys having fatigue or getting hurt, the amount of innings that are on those shoulders, like that's a huge risk. And yet when they sign these guys, People thought this was the second coming of Nolan Ryan. And it's like, it doesn't really work that way. Look at how pitchers are treated now. Like the fact that Verlander and Scherzer were pitching so elitely into the ages that they are pitching is sort of an anomaly because even still with everything that we have with medicine, generally you don't see dominant stuff that late in a guy's career. No, generally not. Uh, it was a good move. I mean, both of those both of those guys have proven their track record has proven that they can do it and they can do it late in their career. And I think I said it um, like on the first episode, Max Scherzer, by the way, one of my favorite players and still will be. And I loved him when he was a national and, and I and I liked him when he was a Met. Max Scherzer. Um, he, yeah, I think I think he's what thirty six years old. He's proven that he. And when they signed him, I think it was three year contract. How many years are you going to get out of him realistically? Uh, two, um, you know. And then once he starts to lose steam, it's it's gone. I don't think you can expect him to bounce back uh, with the age. Verlander is kind of even more special. He's older. I think he's forty or forty one. Um, he had his career has been kind of up and down early in his career is dominant with the Detroit Tigers. Then he had like a weird abdominal muscle problem that kept him out for like two years. And I always felt, and then he, and then once he finally bounced back from that, he looked like he was five years younger again and became dominant, then went to Houston. There was something special in the water down there for pitchers. Still can't figure out why that is. By the way, uh, speaking of that, once Justin Verlander came back to Houston, Framber Valdez threw a complete game shutout. He did. Oh, it was fantastic! Like he, like yeah, Verlander came in, and for all of a sudden, Valdez found his stuff again after a couple bad starts. There's something special about Verlander being on Houston. He likes it there. He's won there. He wants to be there. And for him to go to the Mets for one year <laughs> and then come back, I mean, I think Houston gave a couple prospects up, and and good for them for the Mets for getting that. But man, yeah, Verlander coming, going, and coming. That's I, I don't think that's ever happened. 
ever. It really hasn't. And I have a stat that I'm going to try to find about Max Scherzer because I think he's getting paid by three different ball clubs right now oh my gosh. or something wow. like that. So <laughs> it, it's amazing how that works out. But mm-hmm. right now, though, so let's take the Mets out of it because they're a laughing stock. They're ridiculous. And as you said, period, end of story. And I feel bad for you Mets fans because the excitement, you must have felt it. But at this point, it, it's the results are in. But I'm going to say this, and I want you to check me if I'm being ridiculous or hyperbolic, but I think that this year, now keep in mind the pitch clock was added this year, and the it's an aggregate effect of rule changes that have happened over the last couple of years that I think have all totaled up to what has been a more exciting game. But I think this is the first year that I can remember in a very long time that there are this many teams legitimately in the hunt this late in the season, to the point that the list that we have in front of us about the the trade deadline, it's about a dozen teams. And that's not even including the teams that are safe, like the Dodgers, like the Braves, teams like that. It's exciting. And I think that the rule changes and the pitch clock and just the changing of how baseball is played has lent to that. And I just, I feel a palpable excitement when I watch a baseball game now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, well, there's a dozen teams that make the playoffs, by the way. There's three divisional leaders on each league, in each league, and then three wild cards in each league, total 12. Um, so, yeah, you're going to see a lot more teams. And it's exciting to see teams that aren't usually there. Like we talked about, you, you've got your big market, but now you get to see a couple a couple come in like the Reds. And, and again, they didn't do anything at the trade deadline. Maybe it was smart, maybe not. But they're in there and, and they have a shot. Uh, Texas, um, they weren't that great last year. Now they're one of my favorite teams, and now they look extremely strong now that they've added Scherzer, and they've got a great um, divisional rivalry with Houston. It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, but I, I know that a lot of teams make the playoffs now, but when I say that, this isn't like in the NBA or the NHL, more specifically the NBA, where a team with a losing record will get in because so many teams make the playoffs. Almost half the league makes it. All the teams that are in the hunt right now are almost all at least five or more games over 500. Like the Reds are almost 10 games over 500. So they're not just squeaking by because their division is bad. The AL Central is obviously bad. What did you call it? Competitive or something last time. But (laughs) point being is I think that there are more teams in it and teams that are surprising because I think that the game has changed just enough to where these offenses have come alive and these teams now are able to be in more baseball games and win more baseball games because the ball is being put in play more and the game itself is more exciting and faster for these offenses, which I think is what you said was a desired byproduct of the pitch clock. Yeah, now that we're four months into the season with all these changes, you can look at some real stats and I was looking at total runs per game. It's about almost six runs per game. It's like 5.5, whereas last year it was under four. Huge difference, really. Like if over the course of hundreds of games, um, huge difference there. So the offense is there. Um, if, and if you can, you know, start getting streaky as a team offensively, it gets really exciting. And all the games, and it, like for instance, let me just point out a team. The Cubs right now are creeping up on the Reds. Their offense is clicking. Um, Stroman is on the IL. He's trying to figure some things out, but then they became buyers and they added Cancelario, huge bat from the Washington Nationals, who I thought they were going to keep, but they, they used them as a trading chip, sent him to Chicago. Chicago keeps Bellinger and all of a sudden, and, and the rest of their young team is actually clicking Nico Horner's like just collecting hits left and right. Uh, really fun team. And I really want to see the Cubs make a push. Um, against the Reds. And I really like the Reds are a fun story. Um, they didn't add anything. Uh, when you don't add anything at the trade deadline and you're in first place, you're kind of seeing like all of the other uh, teams get better and you look like you're going backwards just because you didn't do anything. The Cubs added pieces. Their team is galvanized. They've got good club chemistry. Get into the playoffs. Anything could happen. It's, it's, it's exactly what you want to see. It's really exciting. But two teams I want to end with How about the New York Yankees who were Mm -hmm. very, very quiet, almost yelling in their silence at the trade deadline. And the thing about the Yankees that's interesting is I have been critical of their fan base about Aaron Boone because they've wanted to fire Aaron Boone just about every single year since he's been there. Yeah, you're right. And I understand that the Yankees are a different breed in the fact that they have such a rich history of winning. 
They haven't won since 2009, so it has been a minute. It's been almost 15 years, a long time. And the thing is, is Aaron Boone was handed a very, very talented squad with a lot of pieces, and he has been to the World Series. He has been to American League Championship Series. But I understand that the frustration in not winning is is coming up, but I think that this year in particular is the first year where I feel like something's got to give because that team has a lot of talent. I understand Judge was hurt at one point, but they still have a lot of talent. They're in a tough division, and they're staring up, and usually they're staring down. Last place. Who are you going to blame in that scenario? Because I think a lot of times in sports, if you have a group of very talented guys, the coach needs to be able to get the maximum out of them. That's why Phil Jackson was a great coach. It's why Bill Belichick is a great coach. And maybe Aaron Boone just isn't that guy. And I think we have finally have enough of a sample size. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on this because they did nothing. And I don't see them getting any better or just all of a sudden improving and making headway in that division. Well, yeah, the Yankees, they were very quiet on the trade deadline. And that is a shock. That's a team that, hey, you're the Yankees. You're over 500. You're in a now the 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 AL East is having um, if the season ended today, the collective winning percentage of the AL East would be a record for highest winning percentage. I think it's five point six something that. So the strength of that division this year is historical. Uh, the Yankees look very bad in a very, very good dis, uh, division. So they're not, they're not terrible. Okay. They're not, they're still above 500. They're still a good team. They're dealing with some injuries. The problem with the Yankees is they, they like, like the Mets. Um, they have a lot of money tied up into some older players and they are just locked in Mike Stanton. Okay. He's a guy that I've watched, and I don't watch the Yankees a lot. I, I did last year and this year less so. But when I watch Mike Stan, he looks completely lost at the plate. And he's he's gonna he's he's under contract until like twenty eight. That's that's and he's making thirty two million a year, I unless it unless it uh, goes up in value every year like sometimes it does. That that's a lot of money tied up into one guy that looks that lost. Uh, now Derek Jeter giving Stanton away to the Yankees from the Marlins looks like a genius. <laughs> you don't want that contract. Uh, judge, even even the judge contract, okay? And last year, I he had a historical year last year, and he earned that contract, but he's 30, and he just signed a huge contract for a long period of time, and the Yankees keep doing it. Do you think Judge can sustain that year after year for, for 10 years, 8 years, whatever it is? Uh, that's going to be a tough sell. And like, they've got these other players, Donaldson, LeMayu, you know, s- some other guys, uh, Garrett Cole is just the workhorse of the, of the unit. He's just one of the, one of the best guys on the team, but it's just another example. <clears throat> and this is really comes down to Cashman building the team. I would be so frustrated as a Yankees fan. It's looking com- like complete garbage. Honestly, you're losing to every team in the division. And that just doesn't happen very often. It looks bad. They're not used to that, but a team that is sort of potentially getting to the same place might be the Phillies. I know this is sort of home for you, but, and I'm talking about from a contract perspective because boy, Trey Turner, I see stuff about him all the time on my Facebook feed and I'm not even a Phillies fan. (laughs) So it's obvious that they're not, or they're feeling a certain way about that contract. And then of course you have the Bryce Harper contract, which is going to be a Stanton-esque contract by the time he gets later on. Now, they built a lot of goodwill last year, going to the World Series, having that great run. And this year, they're kind of on the fringe. And I don't believe they did a whole lot to improve their their stance here. But are you a little bit worried? You're a Phillies fan, full disclosure. But are you a little bit worried about the future of this club organizationally that you're going to be staring at? We have nothing except a bunch of old guys. Oh, yeah. 100%. And, and you really, and, and the Phillies need to be careful. And I think the fans... Are knowledgeable and passionate enough to to stay on that, and the media is smart enough to continue to hammer the Phillies and say, "Yeah, this is a problem." Now that you mentioned Trey Turner, okay, he's having a very bad season. Uh, he's not a home run hitter. He's a he's a contact hitter, and he's an on base percentage guy, and has great defense. He's committed a lot of errors this year, and he's got a huge contract. Uh, but he's built differently. He's not very injury prone. I think he can stick around. Yeah, he's having a bad year, but he's still got time to turn it around. Sometimes that happens. You're on a new team. You're not clicking. It happened to Cassianos last year. 
he was so quiet last year. He's got a five-year contract and came playoffs. He he won a game almost by himself against the Atlanta Braves last year. And it, it was like once that happens as a fan, you see that all of a sudden all is absolved. You win a playoff game by yourself and get to stay in Philadelphia for another another day or you see the team go home. All of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, you're just at that point. It doesn't matter. The team collectively as a whole is doing very well they're staying they're staying in it first by the way Bryce Harper you got to remember he had Tommy John surgery he didn't come back he came back early and if anybody gives him crap for for looking bad I don't want to hear it he looked he came back early to play and he's doing a damn good job by the way he's playing first base he's not his natural position he's doing it for the team and he's contributing to the team Cassiano's great year, a little bit down lately, but then he, he came back and hit a walk-off again and won a game uh, the other day. Um, it's a team sport. Let, let's just see how it plays out. It's They're in the mix. They just added an arm, Michael Lorenzen. Uh, he's going to get to throw to JT. A lot of a lot different look than being on the Detroit Tigers. You don't know, you don't know what the mentality is of um, being a perennial loser and you get a guy like Mike Lorenzen, who is a very passionate pitcher. He's got a great story behind him if you want to look it up. I, I like the addition. They didn't do much, but they can't. Now, the, now the thing that, like you were mentioning, your question about longevity of the team, and a lot of teams face this, where you've got a lot of money built in. Big, big market teams like the Phillies, they have a lot of money built into long contracts. You definitely need to be aware, wow. How I mean, in in the last five years, I feel like every time they've just mortgaged the farm, they they don't have a whole lot in their system. Uh, they've got a couple guys that are like maybe they'll pan out. One of them, Andrew Painter, just had Tommy John surgery. Now we won't see him for a while. You then then all you do is rely on the free agent market, and and then the time the time ticks down. You're then you've got the problem that the Yankees currently have. Wow, we've got a ton of contracts. We can't pay for anything. We can't we can't buy anything and now we're stuck for a decade. And Philadelphia is not the place for that because the fans are as unforgiving, if not more unforgiving, than New York fans in a way. But you mentioned a team in there and you talked about perennial losers and you talked about the Tigers and players that did not get traded. The one that stood out to me, outside of some other guys like Tim Anderson, was Eduardo Rodriguez. And the interesting part is he had a no trade clause that he decided not to waive to stay with the Detroit Tigers instead of going to a playoff contender. I don't want to make a guess as to why that is, but my guess, just on the surface, not knowing anything about the guy outside of what I knew of him when he pitched for Boston, is that he didn't want any pressure of pitching in a playoff race, and he's good where he is, making the money and being just another guy. And you know what? I have to say, as a fan that does make you wonder about a guy, but it's his job. And if he's happy at his job, then just let him be happy at his job. Remember, Zach Grinke didn't want to go to a big market because he didn't want all that pressure. Adam Jones with the Orioles kind of, you know, did the same thing. He decided to stay. Exactly. But do you find that a little bit odd, though? Because it it did pop out to me when I was kind of scrolling through some of the highlights and it was like, wow, he he decided not to waive his no-trade clause to stay in Detroit. What did that you one, make of that? That one really puzzles me. Sometimes when I see a team um, have a guy that's like clearly like, hey, we're not going to make the playoffs and we've got some chips to play with. Um, Eduardo Rodriguez was one of them. Tim Anderson was another one. And now it's like when when those guys don't get traded, you're like, well, what happened? Somebody was sleeping at the switch. Not Not all the time. Sometimes what's happening is owners behind the scenes are testing the market and they'll say, wow, we can, you know, we've still got another co- year of, co- of, of control over this guy. He's available. Nobody's biting, but they said they kind of advertise him. They're putting him out there and saying, hey, this guy's available. And then they're kind of, they're seeing what the interest is. You, us as fans, we only really get to hear rumors and deal done deals. There's a lot of talk on behind the sidelines that are going on where you're, you know, they're kind of saying, hey, I'm I'm willing to part with these players to get this guy or willing to part with cash to get this guy. Um, and so you start hearing that. And sometimes, too, um, say you've got um, in the middle of the season, say you lose a player like a pitcher or an outfielder 
or an infielder. Uh, that's that gap fill situation becomes really tricky if you just lose a player and you're in a race. Um, off season, it becomes a lot less tricky. <clears throat> you make a trade in the off season, say you lose an outfielder, and all of a sudden you've got two months to fill it. Mid season, that's much harder. Uh, also, moving guys, some people don't want to do it. Like you, like you mentioned, he he executed his no trade clause. Um, the other thing with Eduardo Rodriguez is, uh, by the way, he's having a, a really good season. Played for the Red Sox for a long time. Never looked that good. He's having a great season. It's almost like a little resurgence. He looks great. Then he he pulled. Um, he got a like a index finger injury, which uh, it was like a pulley uh, system where. Pitchers have experienced this injury, and then they don't get back for a year. So he had this injury. He's already bounced back earlier than expected. Uh, I think teams were a little bit had cold feet about getting a guy that actually came back from this particular injury. So maybe it was wise for him. Uh, it's a, it would have been a lot of pressure for him to go onto a team that's going playoff bound. Say he does poorly. If he does poorly... All of a sudden, that market cools. Nobody wants him at all. Now he has the opportunity to say, hey, I'm working through an injury. And he gets, so that's a special case. But other circumstances where there's guys on the market, owners are talking about it. They still want these guys. If there's a year left of control, there's still leverage for an owner to get something for these guys, which is, I think, the case for um, some of the teams that decided not to go in the trade deadline, like maybe the Giants. Very quiet. Have a lot of cash in the background. Will they make a play for an Otani? Well, you know, you never know. So the Giants are in it, but they were quiet. Maybe they're playing that long-term play. They probably are. But I think the trade deadline in general was really good. And we just got almost 40 minutes out of it, which is 10 minutes longer than I said we were going to get. But there's a couple other things I want to talk about, though. Let's talk about the All-Star game, which was earlier or a couple weeks ago. I was out of town for that. But the All-Star game is something that I used to love like really, really love and look forward to. And my interest in it has sort of waned over the years. And probably some of that has to do with life circumstances and just, you know, where things are in my life. But the All-Star game used to mean something. And it used to mean something more than just another game. Like I used to watch it and love it because you saw all these players that you never saw before. And maybe that's part of why the allure has faded a little bit is because we have access to every team. So this isn't the first time in a season that you're seeing the guy do something. But I've, this year, the National League won, and it was, of course, a low-scoring game because the best pitchers in the league are in this game. So it's just a perfect example of where pitching is right now. If you don't get to them early, you're not going to get to them late because no. you're basically throwing every single guy's heater out there. Everybody's legit. And it's, and it's amazing, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> But how do you feel about where the All-Star game is now? I think Seattle was a great backdrop mm -hmm. for it. I think that the yeah. crowd was definitely there. Yeah, The Home Run were. Derby seemed to be exciting. It's not what the Home Run Derby used to be, but I think that they have done a good job of adapting it to today's mindset rather than what it was. Because I saw a clip and posted it, Sammy Sosa hitting like 600-foot bombs at the Home Run Derby. And I was like, you know what? I kind of miss that. Yeah, that's true. And I did hear some radio personalities talk about, oh, the All-Star game's not fun anymore. The Home Run Derby's not fun anymore. Uh, I, I don't completely agree with that. I think there's it's still fun. I watched four innings of it and then had to put the kids to bed. I did watch part of the Home Run Derby. I watched uh, Vlad just... Oh, um, um, Julio Rodriguez hit, I think, 40 home runs in one round. It was fantastic. I actually got to see that live. So fun to watch. Um I'm an and I'm a National League fan, and I don't think they had won that game in like 12 years. That was fun. Um, th you're right though. Like I remember, um, right around Fourth of July in the 90s or early 2000s, I'd get really excited for the game. And this year, it's uh maybe maybe less so. And I'm not sure if that's me just becoming an old curmudgeon or or what. Um, but yeah, I've I, I maybe maybe it's like you said. There's the access to games is so prevalent that uh, the All-Star game just doesn't seem as great. Whereas before, prior to the Internet, prior to replay and all the things that we have, that was the game that you really wanted to watch. That was the premier game. It's still the best. It's still the best All-Star game of all four sports. I, Hands I down. Not even close like that. We're in agreement about. But when I think about the All-Star game, I think about specific memories in All-Star games that 
are from the game. Like players used to love the All-Star game and used to play competitively in it. I'm not saying that they don't today, but something changed. And I think it's just the way that society is that younger people coming up and growing up, right? They're different. They're built differently. We see this in our workplace all the time. The way that we were taught to come up in a workplace and you work hard and you compete and all that. And there is a time and a place for competition. The All-Star game seems to be something that is less so than it used to be. Long gone are the days of Pete Rose running over a guy at home plate. Like those days are done. But do you remember things like this? Like, I think it was 2004, Eric Gagne blew a save in the All-Star game. Oh, yes. It was the first time he'd blown a save in like 60 attempts. That's right. It didn't count because it was an All-Star game, but my mouth was agape because he blew a save. And I, was I like, remember that. And now he was on steroids, we found out later, but that streak was amazing. Torrey Hunter robbing Barry Bonds. Do you remember that? Yeah. Unbelievable catch. Unbelievable. I think that was the All-Star game with a tie, by the way, with Bud Selig just going, I don't know, which was one of the worst looks in baseball. But those are the moments that I remember. Ted Williams coming out in 1999 at Fenway Park. Pedro Martinez. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa at the Home Run Derby that year over the monster. These are the types of things that I remember about it. Did they play at Fenway Park that year? Yeah, it was 1999. Oh my That's gosh. why Ted Williams coming out like just, you want to talk about the religion of baseball in a moment. Fenway Park, which is one of the oldest stadiums, and Ted Williams, one of the most beloved players in all of baseball. And I, I don't mean, oh yeah, not just in Boston, but Ted Williams, all of baseball. And just to go off on a tangent, Ted Williams is my favorite player of all time. I never saw him play. But those guys in that era, the amount of respect that I have for so many of the greats losing four years to the war yes. and still coming back and putting up Hall of Fame numbers. Like what Ted Williams did in the season after the war, he won like the MVP or something. And it's like, wow. Like he imagined what those guys would have had if they didn't have to give up those years. Different generation. It is a different generation. But my point is, is the greatness back then was just an insane. Oh, Ted Williams is one of the greats. If not, I mean, I, it, some could argue he's actually one of the best of all time because he did have that separation and went to war because I think, what was his batting average, his career batting average? Oh, it was insane. It was well over 300. Well over 300. He's written books about the art of hitting. Um, yeah, yeah. What can you say more about this guy? He's, he's one of the best all time. But I think that the All-Star game for me is a nostalgic thing because baseball does something really well. They lean into their past very well. They lean into that nostalgic arm. And I used to love Fox's broadcast when they used to have those montages about things and they would play sort of an Americana type thing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I'm sure they still do those types of things. But there was a time in my life where I felt that more than maybe I do today because I think yeah. I think in yeah. this country now, the feeling of Americana has changed for many reasons that we're not going to get into on this show. But it's... It's a little different, but well, I mean, the sport of baseball, love it, hate it, indifferent about it, whatever. This sport is absolutely woven into this country's history. It, it, it's a part of it. And and yes, when you get together in an Ulster game or like the Field of Dreams game that they implant, you do feel pretty nostalgic and special about what's happening right in front of you and that Americana that we all that we all kind of like it's uh it's it's like a dream that's not dying you know it's the field of dreams there you go <laughs> yes but baseball has a lot of those types of things that they can still do and sometimes they come off cheesy and corny but it's 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 baseball i mean that's what baseball is and it it, it pulls at to me some of the most pure and hokey sort of feelings that we have and it's a different game it's a different feel but i think that the all-star game is still special it's just yeah. different than it used to be. And I think for a lot of people, different than it used to be means that it's dying. It's changing. It's evolving. And it's just, it's different. Well, American culture to me is what's new. The sport is constantly evolving. Everyone, Americans love just going to the next new thing. And I'm, I'm here for it. I love it. And the sport is evolving, but it has that tie back to history that will never go away no matter what. And, and so as as long as this game is being played, as long as the game is evolving and getting better and fans are watching it, I, I feel like all is well in the world. It's just going to keep getting, it's going to continue. And something that also continues for me is reverence for the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame class recently inducted or 
soon to be inducted, and two guys, I believe, made it, Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff. And Fred McGriff is probably a name, if you're a young person watching this, you're probably like, who is that? Because Fred McGriff, it's been a long time since he has held a baseball bat and played, but he's a guy that I specifically remember for his unique batting stance and a guy who just played the game well and did all the right things. Was one of those great teammates, a locker room guy with a lot of talent. How old was he in his last season? I don't remember. I think he was over the age of 50. He might have been for the Tampa Bay Rays, <laughs> I feel like. He was a he was a Tampa Bay Ray there for a while. He might have been one of the expansion picks that he they had. But I remember him as an Atlanta Brave, obviously. Yes, same, Ni- same. 1995 team. But one of the greatest nicknames in sports, Crime Dog. It's fantastic. McGruff the Crime Dog, which, again, is probably a super dated reference now. I'm not even sure if McGruff is still a thing. Some of our viewers might get the reference. But the Hall of Fame, to me, is... It's it's a different thing. The Baseball Hall of Fame, and maybe we put too much reverence on the Baseball Hall of Fame than other Hall of Fames, because really, and let me, let me ask you this. I heard this, and I want to know if you agree, that the Hall of Fame is for the fans and not for the players. Do you agree with that? Oh, my goodness. I do agree with that. Yes, I agree with that. And it was about Pete Rose being in the Hall of Fame. And the reason I bring up the Hall of Fame is not to talk about this class, which Scott Rowland, excellent player, Fred McGriff, excellent player, to me, both deserve to be there. Fred McGriff is one of those people who, when he was on the ballot, the people that came up on the ballot every year that he was eligible, he had no chance. Right. And that's the tough part (laughs) about being on the ballot. It's when you're on the ballot. There were guys, I don't know, I don't know if you're this way. I fight for guys that I feel like should get in every year. Like for the longest time, Tim Raines was my guy. For the longest time, Larry Walker was my guy. And I'm like, get these guys in. They deserve to be in, but every yeah, time... Yeah, and then you, you, start have, you start having the discussions about the comparables and what they've done in their career, and you really... Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you there. Larry, Larry Walker was a no-brainer to me, oh. but it took him a while because the people that came on the ballot, like, what would end up happening for me is I would look at a guy and be like, all right, he didn't make it this year. Who's coming next year? And you'd be like, damn, like, he's not going to make it this year because it was like Jeter or Rivera, and you're like, well, that's, that's an obvious vote. Like, most of those guys were going to get in. First time, yeah. Yeah, but the Hall of Fame, have you been to the Hall of Fame? Uh, you mean in Cooperstown? Yes. Yeah. I went when I was young and it was special. Like you walk in there and it is basically a museum of Americana. I remember it being that way. Cooperstown, New York, by the way, last time I was there, a long time ago, but it is not like some big place that you go to. It is, it was small town America. Small town, Onianta, New York, yep. I believe. Yep. And we went there for the 4th of July and my parents, God bless my mom, rest in peace, she thought that going to the Baseball Hall of Fame would be the most American thing you could possibly do on the 4th of July. No fireworks, believe it or not. And she was just, they were shocked because nothing happened. But for me as a kid, it was what, 11? And they're like, we're going to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. I was like, yes, this is fantastic. Like, I just... That is fantastic. And I want to go there again one day, and I want to take my son there. But I love the Hall of Fame because I think it is for fans in the sense that when guys come up on the ballot, we all feel a certain way about the guys that are coming up on the ballot. Because you and I are at the age now where the guys coming up, we watched as a kid. And fast forward 20 years from now, your kids are going to be watching guys that are on the ballot or playing right now. And they're going to be like, oh, I remember that. I remember watching that guy play. And it's this moment that you have of, wow, I saw that guy's entire career. And now five years have gone by or more. There's a lot to chew on in that museum, too. You you get all the different uniforms. You get every team got, has like a little shrine. I think there's like one room. It looks like a dugout and every team is displayed there with certain players from the team. It's really nice. Oh, it's, it's just, it, it, <laughs> it gives me the feels in all of those ways that you feel as a child. And it's one of the rare things in life that can bring you back to those yeah, moments. It does make you feel like a child. Christmas time, I think, does that for a lot of people, depending on your childhood, of course. But I know for me, it does bring me back in that way because you remember those moments that you had. But baseball and the Hall of Fame is very much that way. But I want to ask you some some tough questions oh because now that guys are in, the conversation switches away from the guys that are in to the guys that are not in. And I want to specifically talk about three guys because I want to also kind of reverse course for myself. But Pete Rose, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, oh, these are guys. Gosh, here we go. Well, hold on. And now, because I was watching some videos and listening to some people talk about this, I have been very harsh in my youth about these guys because of the the way that they or supposedly broke the rules. But I think that now that I have a little bit more nuance in my brain, I've rethought some of these things and I've softened it. But 
I don't think I've ever asked you your opinion on this. Now, steroids and the gambling aspect are different, but I wanted to ask you in general about these types of guys who I think are not going to get in until they're dead, in my opinion. And how do you feel about that? Man, I have gone back and first of all, Pete Rose and Barry Bonds, I forget the third one you listed, uh, to Clemens. Cle- Clemens, yeah. Um, Pete Rose and Barry Bonds and Clemens, uh, Pete Rose is specifically out for a very different reason than Barry Bonds. So, like, let's talk about Pete Rose first. Um, one of the greatest uh, on-base percentage guys, one of the, like Mr. Uh, Mr. Hustle played played for the uh, Reds and for the Phillies and did well and had that attitude and was really fun, but uh, gambled and got caught. And he is he is like been excommunicated from MLB. He is not in good standing with MLB. So if you, no matter what, um, how we feel, like going back to your point about the Hall of Fame being for the fans, no matter how the fans feel about Pete Rose, MLB is not good with Pete Rose. And they have made it very clear that they're not good with Pete Rose and he's kind of out. For Regardless of how I feel, I don't think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and I go ahead. You want to say something? <laughs> I was not expecting you to say that, actually. No. I was not. I, I because I have felt that way for a very long time and I have found myself somewhat softening. But I also yeah, feel I softened on it a bit. too. But OK, so there are some nuances to the Pete Rose thing that you pointed out. First of all, his standing with MLB. And I think let's take that aside. It's more talking about should or shouldn't he. But when I think about the gambling aspect of it, a lot of people will say that, well, he gambled as a manager. And that's true. But what we know, what was proven, he never gambled on his team to lose. Okay, right? Fine. Because Shoeless Joe Jackson is also not in the Hall of Fame, having taken $500. Think about that. $500. Now, back in that day, it was a lot of money. But $500 to throw a World Series that he hit almost 400 in. And so if we're not letting Shoeless Joe in, it's very difficult to make an argument that we're going to let Pete Rose in. Because in my mind, the slippery slope that comes up here is what was proven versus what we all know was probably true. Was Pete Rose gambling on more baseball games while he was a player? Exactly. To me, it feels like a jump to say no, that he just started doing it when he was a manager. And I think that his behavior after the fact has not helped his cause whatsoever. He doesn't read the room. He doesn't have any humility whatsoever. Exactly. He has no humility. That's the part for me that always sets it apart. I know people want to say, well, it's what he did on the field. But when you're in this position, and, and we know this a lot today, where people get caught doing something, the first thing that they do is come out with some apology. We all know it's BS, but from a PR perspective, that's what you do. Pete Rose has never unapologetic done it <laughs> and i think that is the problem right because what he maybe what he, but what he did was against everything that we know look at the nfl is cracking down on this well, stuff you bring up shoeless joe jackson and i think that's a great comparison i have to interrupt but the that that precedence and i'll let you i'll let you kind of jump back on but that precedence is a big deal because that was kind of like when uh baseball had a really big problem with with people throwing games and they knew that at that time, at that age, that was a real threat to the overall uh, game. It, I mean, if everybody started cheating and throwing games, especially like a pitcher or or a, or especially a pitcher, it it's going to be over. And then if you have no control, so that's kind of where that began was that player. Um, so I just wanted to add that. I thought that was a good reference. Totally agree with you. And it was a reference I had forgotten about because it's been such a long time. The Black Sox scandal. I don't know how many people bring that up in in regular talk when they're talking around the water cooler about baseball because it's just not brought up anymore. But so Pete Rose, I think we're both in agreement on that. And I thought the other day that maybe I was going to soften to the point where I'm like, yeah, let him in. But when I thought about the other stuff that we just talked about, it's hard. It's hard for me not to let him in. Do his stats deserve to be in 100%? I think that he will get in posthumously one day because I think that that is what baseball is willing to do. But let's move on to the steroid, guys. The steroid era to me is interesting because it's so hypocritical in the fact that we all ate up the home run chase in 98. We knew something wasn't on the up and up. Baseball turned the other cheek. And then all of a sudden, 
when Barry Bonds was doing it, it was a bridge too far. And now I think we've learned a little bit more about one, how many players were participating in this. It was pretty much league-wide and rampant. And not every player, but a vast majority of players. And now we look at this and Barry Bonds, to his credit, I guess, has never really been the guy that's been like Pete Rose unapologetic. I mean, he's never really been provenly tested positive. He's in good standing with the MLB. Exactly. Clemens, on the other hand, always bothered me because he was kind of an a-hole about it and throwing everybody and their mother, including his wife, by the way, under the bus during all these things. But I think of Barry Bonds, and even Clemens to an extent, but I think Clemens is a different one. But Barry Bonds, take away his steroid-era stats, he's a Hall of Famer, 100%. Oh my gosh, yes. Not even close, right? And he probably, if he never took a steroid in his life, would be talked about as one of the five best all-around players ever. Clemens, though, was precipitously dropping in his performance and then managed to go to Toronto. Remember, Dan Duquette was the... GM of the Red Sox at that time wanted to trade Roger Clemens because said he was done. And then all of a sudden Clemens comes back with a new body and two Cy Young awards in a row. So that is a little tougher, a little different in the sense that I wonder if Clemens would have continued being as dominant later in his career had it not been for the steroid era. But Bonds was already great. He could have retired that day. That, that's that you what you've just highlighted there is so smart because that there is the fuzzy gray line. You don't know. You will never know uh, what a player would be if they did not take steroids. And I think it comes down to, I mean, you you brought it up. Um, it comes down to, uh, well, it, steroids were out there. Everybody was taking And now I'm reading things on social media that were quotes from the 60s where people were taking some things for performance enhancement. That's always been happening. Uh, it, and was there a serious crackdown on it while people were taking it? No. Uh, that's why, well, I mean, the first time you're really hearing about it is Barry Bonds, like you mentioned, uh, Alex Rodriguez and Roger Clemens was the first time. And now uh, what you'll, what you'll see is that, um, if you accept how widespread it was and that everybody was taking it and playing this on the same, you know, the same field, maybe you could soften on your approach where you can just say, Hey, it was a more fun game. There were more home runs. Uh, I don't agree with this, by the way, but you could. See, I could see, you know, this is one way they could get in, and I don't think I, I've gone back on should they or shouldn't they be in the Hall of Fame. I, right now, today, you ask me, I don't think they should be in personally. And a lot of the a lot of um, old baseball sports writers who vote on the Hall of Fame agree. They don't. I don't think they're going to want the, these guys in either. Um, but if you, but one way they could get in is if you accept how rampant this steroid use was, and it wasn't just the superstars. There was, I think, David Bill, David Bell, current manager of the Cincinnati Reds, on the Phillies at the time was taking steroids, and he never looked that big. It Brady was Anderson. Brady Anderson. So uh, Grady, did you say Grady Anderson? Brady, Brady Anderson. Anderson. So. The other, the other thing that could allow them to get in is all of these players, I don't think there's one of them that are in bad standing with the MLB where they said, yeah, we're, we're breaking the rules and we're not participating with you. I mean, Alex Rodriguez is, is one of the most famous ones, I think, that uh, was, was standing in front of the judge, um, took, took the urine sample, took, took the, and, and I think at some point he told the truth, but all th throughout all of that, he participated with MLB and was he he was okay with them and now he's retired and now he's an announcer and he's doing really well and he MLB and him they have no problem so if you so if you look at Arod or Clemens or Bonds and you agree that everybody was taking it and it was good for the game and now they've cleaned it up and 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 they're not in bad standing with MLB sure maybe they get into the Hall of Fame personally as a fan Today, you ask me, I don't think they should be in. Yeah, I think that for me, I would go person by person. Like I said, McGuire, I wouldn't put in because his game changed so drastically in the steroid era. Remember, there were some seasons where he had more home runs than singles, and that's ridiculous. Like, he was not that guy before steroids. We, we both know that. But Barry Bonds, again, and the thing about Bonds, too, Bonds still had a lot of those five tools even after that. I mean... His on-base percentage in some of those years for being walked, he was still stealing 20 bases. Like, in, 
that's not steroids. He's that was him, right? Like, and his eye, his hand-eye coordination was insane. Still have to hit the ball. Insane. So I wanted to bring that up because I was curious what your thoughts were on that. And you're more hard or iron-fisted than I thought that you would be on that. Uh, I'm I'm surprised. I I am. I well, okay. Who got inducted this year? Scott Rowland, clean player, played in the late nineties. Never was proven to take steroids. Great defensive player. Hit 316 home runs. Had a good average. I think he got in mo- a lot because of his defense. Uh, quiet player. Apparently very dry sense of humor. Uh, gold Glover. Got into the Hall of Fame. And now his numbers do not reflect that of, um, you know, 500, 600, 700 plus home runs. He got in the Hall of Fame. It really sets the stage and it sets the precedence for players like Nolan Arenado. Uh, very good defensive player with that that's shown that they can have um, enough of an offensive uh, capability to maybe make the Hall of Fame one year. So I like that, you know, going back to this year's Hall of Fame, I really like that Scott Rowland got in. I think it's kind of showing maybe uh, maybe the voters for the Hall of Fame are picking players like that rather than the guys who hit 700 home runs. That's fair. It is fair. I think it'll be an ever-evolving thing, but we got two more things to do before we get to the end. So let's do the play of the episode. And I believe it's Ellie De La Cruz from the Cincinnati Reds who stole three bases in one inning, which he was having a moment there for a while. And he's only 21 years old, extremely exciting young player for the Reds and just in the league in general. And the league needs more of these guys. Remember when MLB The Show had Jazz Chisholm on the cover, and I'm like, yes, all of this, all of these young oh, guys yeah. on here are exciting. But three bases in one inning is great. I think the stealing of home is an underrated best play in sports. I don't think it happens very so often. Fun. So when it happens, it's exciting. And it's like it moves the needle because it doesn't happen that often. It happens less often than a Bartolo Cologne inside the park home run. So those things are just very, very rare. But... Uh, the Fantasy Minute, my man. So you gave a shout out to the Howdy Hookers. Oh, right? man. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to give me the Fantasy Minute here? Yes. <laughs> I want it. Uh, every episode, I want it. Okay. So let's see. Fantasy Minute. You you mentioned like child childlike wonder and stuff in Christmas moments. My Christmas day is my fantasy baseball draft. I, I don't know what I'm going to get. It's an auction draft, which, by the way, if, you ha- if you're a fantasy player, football, baseball, whatever, doing an auction draft is way better than the snake draft. It's a lot of fun. You can get any player you want, and it's literally like Christmas morning. You have to be thinking on your feet. So I wanted to go back to that throwback about what do you still like about the sport. I love fantasy, uh, fantasy baseball drafts. Um, let's see. How's my team doing? Well, a lot of ups, a lot of downs in the past month. The thing about the way I play is categories. So if you're not familiar with categories, um, it is a means of playing where there's, uh, in our league, there's a dozen categories. And if you win, uh, you know, eight of them, that gets you eight wins. And it gets you, uh, depending on how many you tie, it might get you four losses. So, So your record is basically a reflection of how dominant you are week to week. So what's been happening is uh, in in the Howdy Hooker League, which I love, uh, I have been clawing my way back from the bottom of the standings, and I actually touched into fourth place, which you need fourth place to get into the playoffs. Very happy about that. And then I go and just get uh, bandsawed and lose thirteen, you know, like twelve to zero, and and now I'm. I've been, and I'll never financially recover from this. <laughs> so that's how I feel. So um, it was a good win to my my opponent, uh, Pitch Clock in Balls. Thank you uh, very much. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to try to dig back. But uh, Framber Valdez, uh, that complete game shutout was very helpful on my team. Matt Olson, uh, currently my best player. And, and uh, even though I'm not a Braves fan, I do love watching him do well is uh, doing well. And um, Manny Machado and Tatis, if you can pull the Padres to victory, I won't mind at all. Uh, and and one last one for the Rangers, Adolis Garcia, I need you, buddy. Let's do it. And there you go. That is Jonesy's Fantasy Minute. So we've reached the end of the episode here. A couple of administrative things. Don't forget to support the Matty S Media Network, mattysmedia.com. 
We are an entity of INC Sports where you can find not only Iceman and Coach, but you can find the Cornerman. You can find Fan to Fan, which is Coach's new one-on-one interview from one fan to another. Lots of content coming out. The football season is right around the corner. You can find INC Sports on TikTok. At INC Sports is the handle to do that. Jonesy, do you have any parting thoughts for the audience? Guys, do me a favor and uh, smash up that like button for me. (laughs) Like and subscribe, all that good stuff. Remember, I always say this, it is not mandatory, but it is very, very helpful. I hope this finds everybody well. I hope that this finds everybody safe. If you have an opinion for us, 703-718-6314 is the number. And as always, from me and from Jonesy, this is Flashing the Leather. That's baseball, baby. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on INC Sports are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. INC Sports is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.